This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Good morning. Good morning. Um, it's always a privilege, and I'm thankful to be able to share with you from Scripture. Um, this series has been great. John, Johnny, Lewis, um, inspiring, insightful. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Adam Holland. I've uh, actually, my lovely wife Amanda and I have been here at Narara Valley since 2006. So we met someone in Texas who had been to this church when we were living there. We emailed Craig. He thought we were scammers and like trying to fleece money from the church. And then we rocked up in person like the first week we got back to Australia and he was like, oh, you're, you're real. Um, and we've been here ever since. Uh, and it's a great blessing to us. Um, I hope in our time together this morning you feel encouraged, uh, challenged, stretched a little bit in the passage that we'll look at um, in 2 Corinthians. Um, I'm actually just going to invite Amanda up to read uh, our passages for us. So we're in 2 Corinthians 3 verses 1 to 18 and then Galatians. All right, let me read. Um, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are, a letter, are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such confidence has this as this is as this is ours through Christ before God not that we not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves but our competence comes from God he has made us com competent as ministers of a new covenant not of the letter but of the spirit for the letter kills but the spirit gives life now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in the letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same vow remains when the old covenant is, covenant is read. It, is not, it has not been removed because only in Christ it is taken away. Even to this day when Moses is reading, a vow covers our hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the vow is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom." And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The next reading is Galatians 5, 22, which reminds me of my daughter reading the cutie fruities with her. 
<laughs> and it says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Thank you. That's, she's very generous reading from the height that suits me and not her. Um, there's so much packed in these passages. Uh, so let me just pick out a few images um, and ideas. Christ writing on our hearts instead of stone tablets, being ministers in the new covenant of the Spirit, having dull minds and veils over our eyes, and increasing glory through the Spirit. There is heaps in that, heaps. And let me be transparent, some of it feels challenging to get my head around. Um, I remember as a child, sort of in church, doing some mental gymnastics and realizing at some point, I think it's easier to just focus on the God and Jesus stuff. And then the book of Revelation and the Holy Spirit, I'll come to at some point in the future when I'm an adult. I'll get to that, and when I figure it out, it'll be great. Um, but I kept sort of pushing, pushing it out, and I guess sadly, um, that can keep going further and further in life, and you don't sort of really settle in and try to understand and ask God to reveal things to you. So I would describe my theology of the Holy Spirit um, as lacking practicality. It just didn't connect into what everyday life looked like and what everyday life felt like. Um, it was this interesting idea, but it wasn't transformative in the real nitty-gritty um, detail everyday life. The closest was probably the fruits of the Spirit, so what Amanda read, read in Galatians. Um, and I knew that from familiarity more than anything else. But I vividly remember being in a play in high school, Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, struggling with some of the lines to learn. And the sort of drama theater teacher sort of took me aside and said, you need to be patient. Patiently learn your lines. Otherwise, it's gonna be fruits of Adam, not fruits of the spirit. <laughs> and so I felt like double reprimand of like spiritual immaturity and I was gonna let everyone down because I couldn't learn the, the lines of the play. And, you know, I mean, Fruits of Adam, if you've read Genesis, isn't a great thing to aspire to. So um, it really sort of made a point. Um, so they always say preach a sermon to yourself first. And over the last couple of weeks, that's always confronting to do. But um, the question I came away with from these passages and the questions I would put to us is um, a really practical one. How do we have confidence in the work of the Spirit in our real everyday lives. And a bit even more specifically, how does that confidence allow transformation in our real daily practical lives? So let's dive deeper. We'll, we'll go into a couple, uh, actually three verses, a little bit deeper. So the first one is three. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. Have any of you ever asked a manager for a reference letter? It's a little bit different in sort of modern day. Um, often it's just a LinkedIn endorsement or it's a phone call from a potential manager to your existing one. Um, but the world wasn't always connected in that way and particularly across distance. Um, people would carry letters of commendation uh, and they were like a certification almost that the person who said they were good at something had some validity or some verification of that. And 
reading these passages, it made me, it reminded me a lot of, um, on my dad's side of the family, there's a lot of builders and a lot of carpenters. Uh, so my uncle Tommy, he's a builder, um, lots of his family, other members, so cousins, um, and they've lived in the same place in Texas for many years, so their reputation is known, and hopefully it's good, I think it is. Um, but he has a letter that's from the 1930s, I think it's 1931, when my grandfather, my dad's dad, moved from one part of Texas to a completely different part. It's a big place, so people didn't sort of know him there. And he had worked as a carpenter at a veteran's home. And they had written a letter of recommendation for him to carry with him so that when he sort of rocked up in this new place, he had some basis to say, hire me as a builder, hire me as a carpenter. Um, and then hopefully, once he got on the tools, he would sort of prove that, that commendation right. Um, in this passage, Paul is announcing that his readers, and this is to the Christians in Corinth, right? So Corinthian Christians. They've passed from death to life, and their new lives prove that the truth of the gospel that Paul has been preaching. Paul doesn't have, and he doesn't need, letters that are written on ink. He doesn't have letters of commendation. His life and the lives of those that he taught are like letters written by the Holy Spirit declaring God's truth to the world. And the same is true for us. We too have hearts that have been written on by the Holy Spirit who know Jesus. Our letters of commendation are not external. They're not something you have to carry with you, but they're internal changes that God's bringing about in us. So I've asked this of myself, and I'd ask it to all of us who know Jesus. Are our daily lives like official letters of commendation from God to those around us? Do we have grace infused in all that we do? Do we let off that aroma of truth and grace mixed together? I'm not sure how many of you keep a journal. I'm, I'm like a classic start-stop journalist. Um, uh, there's sort of tragic when you go back and read through stuff as well and you think it's just so embarrassing. But um, imagine you journaled every day and the stuff that you thought but didn't necessarily say. Imagine if you journaled every day your experiences what you prayed about, what you felt, what you thought. Would your daily journal read like a letter of commendation to the gospel? Would it be communicating the good news to those around you through your life? Full disclosure, mine often wouldn't. Um, if I had like a ticker tape of all the thoughts that go on in here at, on top of my head, you probably wouldn't want me to preach. You probably wouldn't want to be part of your church. Um, um, but we're all fallen. We're all saved through grace. Um, I want to encourage you, if you feel like that journal wouldn't look like a letter of commendation, you don't have to white-knuckle it and just try harder. You don't have to shore up more discipline and more willpower. This passage is about the Holy Spirit in us, in us. It's a supernatural work that happens in the lives of all believers. The Spirit is writing the character of Jesus in our innermost self, and our role, my role, and I have to remind myself of this, is to be willing to respond to the work of the Spirit and to let that show to those around me. So let me put a practical question for us to consider. Where do you feel you need to work harder to get better in an area of your life? Where do you feel you might resist the work of the Spirit writing the character of Jesus in the tablet of your heart? Is there an area of life we become comfortable compartmentalizing 
and just have, sort of having a shadow cast over it, I would encourage you to invite the Spirit into that exact place. Think of verse 3 when you, want to hold on, when you want to hold something back from God, a struggle to control things and push God out. Imagine God writing a letter about you, and he gets to add in some new lines about your transformation. He loves to see the character of Jesus in his children. And there's no shame in what you've held back. There's no shame in what you have compartmentalized away. Just imagine God smiling as he writes a new line in your letter. So has that, have you, as you have that image in your mind, we just want to look at verse 12 together. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Okay, let's talk about some B words. Um, would you describe yourself as bold? It brings different ideas and images to different people. Um, I'm really curious if anyone would describe themselves as brash, another B word. The truth is I unfortunately often associate those two words. Someone being bold looks like brashness. And I suspect that boldness can be one of those like classically misunderstood words, probably not unlike meekness. Meekness is often very misunderstood. So let me try to recover a bit more of a biblical meaning for boldness if you're similar to me and what it conjures up in your mind. Can you think back to a time in your life when you were undeniably bold? When did you make a decision that you just thought, like, this is bold, Cap capital B, bold? I hope one or two examples come to mind. The first one that comes to mind for me is, in many ways, why I'm standing here and on this continent. Um, when I was 18, I guess I really started to consider what I want to do after school. Um, and I didn't know the exact answer to that, but I knew it wasn't exactly what others were doing. I wanted to study, wanted to sort of find my way into a profession, um, but I, I just felt this sort of nudge to do something quite different. Um, so with the help of my parents and, and others, I moved to Australia where I didn't know a single person. Um, got off the plane and thought, yep, yeah, bold, also probably really dumb and really stupid. Um, and just lonely and complicated and felt a bit weird and unsettling. Um, but incredibly, that, that sort of youthful ignorance, God worked powerfully in that. I found an incredible church that I was a part of um, at university on campus, significantly changed the sort of depth of understanding that I had of what, what grace was and who God and Jesus um, are. I met the incredible Amanda. Um, so many different adventures and experiences and life, and I think back on that, and the boldness probably was a little bit of just stupidity, to be honest, like just not really thinking it through, but uh, there was an element of belief. There was an element of sort of faith that something special was going to happen. Um, and boldness comes from somewhere. So that boldness that we read about in this passage, it comes from somewhere. And while it was sort of youthful ignorance for me, um, I just want to read some passages before this one. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? 
it just has a ring of truth about it, right? It's like Romans 8. If God's for us, uh, who can be against us? And I've had to discover that boldness has much less to do with brashness or arrogance or just putting yourself out there and much more to do with an assurance and a confidence that comes from a deeper place and a more quiet place. The fruits of the Spirit are not brash. Instead, they bring about a quiet assurance and a confidence of the work that God's doing in us. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I read those words and I don't immediately think bold, boldness. It doesn't sort of scream out in neon lights. But let me challenge us where boldness comes from. It's not just self-belief. It's not just the willingness to take risks. Boldness in the gospel comes from a deeper place. The fruits of the Spirit show us how we can live in the confidence that God is at work in us and our lives and the real daily nitty-gritty of our lives. Being bold comes from the hope that Jesus has given us and knowing who God is. So I have another question for us to consider. What does boldness look like in your life? You may think of business, you're bold in business, you start new things, you make a lot of money. Boldness in relationships, um, you might be single and feel like your boldness and just put yourself out there. Um, the first time I did that, I got, I got a gentle no from my lovely wife, but I persisted. Um, or even boldness in sport. Lots of, lots of the community in Australia, sport is their sort of church and you're bold on the sporting field and it's this glory. It's like you go in for a massive goal or you, you, know, you sort of go for the winning shot. Um, I, th I think those can, those can be expressions of boldness, but focus on what the boldness looks like in the gospel for you. I find this question one of those really helpful practical ones because boldness probably doesn't come as naturally to me. How do I redefine it? How do I consider it? How do I look at what scripture teaches us to stretch me? And boldness may come more naturally to you in the gospel, how you share the gospel, how you live your life. Um, and I would encourage you to keep modeling that because I think many Christians struggle with boldness. Um, but boldness comes from the hope that Jesus has given us. It's a work of the spirit and it's available to us all. Okay, we have a classic Baptist sermon here with three points, so hang with me. We have one more point. We're going to look at verse 17. Um, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom is one of those words I feel like is best understood in relation to something else. For example, a person can have freedom from pain after they've had surgery, or freedom from addiction after they've had treatment or therapy. We often see advertisements, this always makes me chuckle, for financial freedom, which tends to be associated with paying someone to help you get to financial freedom. I've, I've struggled with that. Um, the word freedom, as we sort of know it, it's about 500 years old. It's from Old English or Dutch, um, and it started out with a very helpful meaning, I think. The meaning it sort of originally, in its original state, was a state of free will, often in relation to the government or what was oppression, um, even with religion. Um, emancipation and deliverance. So free will, emancipation, deliverance. When we read this famous passage from Paul, we need to understand emancipation, deliverance from what? 
What is gospel freedom in relation to? And I would suggest that for followers of Jesus 2,000 years after his resurrection, it's easy for us to be critical of the law. The law was provided by God to the Jewish people. It was objective. It was documented. It was oral. It was verbal. But it was also written down. Um, Think back to verse 3. Literal stone tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. That's part of the law. For those of us who've experienced grace, it's easy to dismiss the law as failed because of human nature, because of the fall. Yet, often I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can take some comfort, we can actually sort of take some strange appreciation to there's this objective set of rules. If we can know those and live up to them, we're good. And I do believe that's why it's often difficult to understand and apply the inner work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because we like to find comfort in an external code. Once the Holy Spirit was given to the church at Pentecost, we have an inner power rather than an external code. The law was temporary and its position changed with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The glory of Christ superseded the law. Where the law places limits on conduct by a set of rules, the Holy Spirit transforms life from within through convictions, desires, affections, the transformation of our mind to the mind of Christ. There's a change from legalism to responding to God through grace, and it enables the Christians, us as Christians, to do what the law requires. I chose this verse specifically to conclude on, not just because it's well known and because it ties in well with the worship song we had before. Um, I chose it because it takes us back to a similar place to where I began. Um, As I shared, I had sort of consigned any real and meaningful understanding of the Holy Spirit to some vague sense of the future. Once, Once I got other stuff worked out, I would get to the complicated stuff. But I now realize I missed so much of how God works in our lives because I had this diminished experience, real daily experience, of the freedom that Paul is talking about here. It was as if I lived with one foot in the law, you know, consciously sometimes and unconsciously others, and one foot in the freedom that comes from the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our life. And my experience of what was complicated about the Holy Spirit wasn't just concepts and confusions, it was really tangible. My experience of the freedom that came from the work of the Holy Spirit was very connected to emotions and feelings. And I don't know what your spiritual journey is, and I don't know what your um, uh, sort of connection with charismatic, renewal theology. I've, I've had a diversity of experience in, in many churches. I, I love it. Um, but I remember, I remember as a sort of young adult, quite vividly, I was on a youth camp in Dallas, Texas, thousands of people in a big stadium, and this high emotive experience. It was one of those sort of peak mountaintop experiences. It was great teaching. Um, and at the culmination of one of the messages, they had... I can't remember the total number, but it was in the thousands of doves, morning doves. And they released them at this sort of peak moment, and it was just incredible. Like you're seeing these doves sort of erupt from behind the stage where the, where the speaker was. Um, there was so much emotion, worshiping together. Um, 
my challenge was the emotion of that experience didn't extend through to next week when I was facing the reality of what life was like for me at that age, challenges, struggles. I remember, I remember walking into like a super high pressure AP physics exam, sort of two weeks later, and thinking, no one's releasing doves in here. Like, this is, this is a very different experience. Um, I'm, like, no one's smiling and high-fiving and like giving me cuddles when I'm arguing with my tennis coach about, I hate practicing, like I don't want to do this. Um, it just felt disconnected. It felt like there was this sort of diversity of experience that didn't get stitched together. And so I don't know for you, but I, I know for many of us and I know for me, the most significant challenge for me was to see and acknowledge that the work of the Spirit, the boldness that comes with that, the freedom and transformation that comes from that wasn't in my nitty-gritty, everyday, real life. And what a miss that was. Because the work of the Spirit is definitely on the mountaintops of emotion, but it's equally in the desperate moments when you just simply don't know what to do. Likewise, it's when you're having a coffee catch-up with a friend or when you're in the cinemas watching a movie. The law is external, but the Spirit is inner. I just want to close with a few sentences that helped me immensely when I was in my 30s, um, and I still felt that struggle with what the work of the Holy Spirit should look like. And like many of us, I have this sort of deep appreciation of C.S. Lewis, um, his Narnia books, Mere Christianity, um, so much more that's incredible. But his letters are, are amazing. So um, when we used to work at a Christian bookstore, I, I used the staff discount to buy heaps of books, one of which was, um, I think it's five volumes of C.S. Lewis's personal letters. And he had this incredible discipline to respond to almost everyone that wrote to him. Um, funny little tangent, Tim Keller's wife, Kathy Keller, has this touching moment where when she was at university, she wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis about how an article she had written got bumped from the college newsletter. And she wrote to him, sort of appealing for sympathy. And he wrote back, saying, look, uh, that's tough. I've had things happen like that where I didn't get something published. I mean, if I think of the latter years of C.S. Lewis's life, in some ways, I don't want him responding in letters to sort of college students. But he did. He was very disciplined with it. Um, and other than the stuff that his brother burnt after he died, that's a tragic story, um, they captured his letters and they published them. And so this is in volume three of his letters, and there's a specific section that spoke significantly to me um, about when the spirit can sometimes feel absent from your real, everyday, nitty-gritty life. And so I'll, I'll read it for us now. It's quite right that you should feel that something terrific has happened to you. It has. And be all glowy. Accept these sensations with thankfulness as birthday cards from God. But remember that they are only greetings, not the real gift. I mean, it is not the sensations that are the real thing. The real thing is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which can't usually be, and perhaps not ever, experienced as a sensation or emotion. The sensations are merely the response of your nervous system. Don't depend on them. Otherwise, when they go, and you are once more emotionally flat, as you certainly will be quite soon, you might think 
that the real thing is gone too. But it won't. It will be there when you can't feel it. It may even be most operative when you feel it least. So let me just read verse 17 for us again. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. My encouragement to us is to translate the work of the Spirit, explained partially in these passages, but in the other passages we've looked at in the series, into the real day-to-day gritty world of your life, of my life. There is freedom that comes from having the inner work of the Spirit give us boldness and the good news. There's freedom that comes from letting the Spirit write more and more of the character of Jesus in our hearts. We're going to hear some more excellent musicianship. Um, And as our band plays, I want to invite you to reflect where you don't experience the freedom that comes from the character of Jesus in your hearts. Consider those areas of your daily life where the Spirit doesn't feel connected, doesn't feel like there's writing in your heart that's happening. Ask the Spirit to work exactly in those places and be confident regardless of what you feel like, regardless of how it feels, God is faithful to complete the work he began in us. He gave us the Holy Spirit to do exactly that. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.